Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Record rises, COVID surges, and borders close as the world reacts to Omicron. Price pressures, the Bank of England raises interest rates to fight inflation, and Lira losses. Same pressures, different response. Turkey cutting interest rates. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move, as always, and it's a Hark the Herald Central Bankers Sing show today. The U.S. Federal Reserve announcing a major policy swing, wrapping up government bond buying by the spring and looking for three rate hikes next year. That's no small thing. The Bank of England already hiking to dampen the inflationary sting, while over in Turkey, as mentioned, President Erdogan still says rate cuts are king. And yet... For all these news, global stock markets still showing a bullish zing. The S&P set to hit new records at the open, undeterred by that Fed pivot. Most of all, it was widely expected, I think. Plus, the Fed will remain supportive even as it dials back support. Jerome Powell shrugging off criticism that they should have acted sooner on prices. I think the Fed was happy to sit on its hands and ensure the recovery. It well was well aware of where it was, I think, in the cycle and timing. JP Morgan's chief US economist, Michael Farrelly, will give his take very shortly. In the meantime, no hanging around. Over in the UK, the Bank of England raising rates for the first time since the pandemic, but emphasising that they remain flexible, something that the European Central Bank, the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve all have in common. They remain flexible. Details just ahead. Different story in Asia, though, as the Australian Central Bank chief sees no rate hikes at all next year. China widely expected to announce fresh stimulus, too, to help boost its growth. Global policymakers hopeful but I think humble too in the face of COVID uncertainties. No change there. Let's get to the drivers. The UK's daily COVID cases have hit a record high, driven by the Omicron variant. France has restricted travel from the country. Health authorities warn they will not have reliable data on the variant until the new year. Salma Abdelaziz joins us now. Record cases, Salma, but give us some context on that as well. So far, I believe the health secretary is saying just 15 people hospitalised. That's right, Julia. And that's because you're going to see a lag between the number of cases rising and that actually translating into hospitalizations. Over the course of that of the pandemic, that lag has been about two weeks. And that's why health officials say now is the time to act. And it already feels like this country is really bracing for impact, bracing for that tidal wave of Omicron that the prime minister has warned about. Many of the streets in central London are empty because people have been recommended to work from home. Uh, And everyone, literally everyone, is reconsidering their Christmas plans. I mean, even the Queen has cancelled a pre-Christmas lunch with her loved ones. 
out of an abundance of caution. And that's the concern here, is that Omicron is doubling rate, is happening every two days. That's twice as many cases every couple of days. There's only a finite number of hospital beds in this country, as there is in any country. And health officials are going to be watching that number very closely. Yes, only 15 people in hospital now, but we know that the number of hospital admissions has risen by 10% in the last seven days. Yesterday, the prime minister and the top uh, uh, chief medical officer, rather, of this country were on air warning everyone to be very careful. They said, think twice before you go to the pub. Think twice before you meet with your friends. Think twice before celebrating with someone you don't know. Now, critics of the prime minister might say, well, then maybe you should close the pubs because we do have restrictions in place, but the country is absolutely not under any tough restrictions like lockdowns that we're seeing in Western Europe. So right now, it's really on every single individual to think about their Christmas plans closely, to be vigilant over the course of the next few days while the health officials just continue ramping up their warnings. Julia. Yes, and the French, they've thought twice, they've fought a third time, and they've decided to add more restrictions on those coming from the UK into France. Talk to us about those restrictions too. Yes, this is going to hit hard, and it's kind of the first travel restriction of the season, so it already starts to make people feel like, will I be able to make it home this Christmas? I know that thought crossed my mind as well. So the French government saying today, if you are coming from the UK into France, you must have a compelling reason, unless you're a French resident or a citizen of France. Otherwise, don't come. If you're a tourist, don't come into France. If you have to come, if you have that compelling reason, you're going to be subject to showing a negative COVID test rather 24 hours before your departure. Uh, You'll be asked to self-isolate for a week once you've arrived in France, but you can be released early if you have a negative test after 48 hours. So really tough, really stringent measures here. And that's because Omicron right now seems to be uh, moving very quickly through the UK, faster than it is in other European countries. And France looking to really just keep that variant out. Julia? Yeah, four times more transmissible. We're going to see the numbers uh, soar. Sam Abdelaziz, thank you for that. It's heartbreaking as it is to hear. Rapid resurgence of COVID in Asia, meanwhile, too. China sees another day with new cases in double digits. And in South Korea, the number of critically ill patients is at a record, as David Culver reports. Another day of double-digit cases here in China, which for many other countries may seem like a successful day, but in a country where they are still trying to maintain a zero-COVID policy, it's a continued struggle. And they do say they have two cases of Omicron detected in the South, but as of now, the most recent outbreak in Zhejiang province, which has uh, double digits continuing uh, to be reported, well, those don't seem to be involving any of the Omicron variant. That, according to health officials here in China. One point of concern is coming out of a study from Hong Kong. The University of Hong Kong researchers, they are saying that Sinovac, which is widely used here in the mainland and in many other countries, is not going to be very effective against Omicron. Now, they're basing that on the number of antibodies that are generally needed to neutralize this new variant. The study suggesting that there could be many breakthrough infections, meaning those who have received the vaccine, Sinovac, could very well still contract Omicron. Now, going forward, China determined to maintain their very strict contact tracing, likewise the mass testing, and the targeted lockdowns, certainly going to keep those in place as we expect the Beijing Winter Olympics to get underway 
in February of next year. I want to take you to Australia now. It's there where they're seeing a record number of daily confirmed cases in the state of New South Wales. And it may seem concerning given that this is a record number going back to the start of the pandemic, but health officials there are really focused more so on the number of hospitalizations. And as of now, while they're still urging folks during this holiday season to try to keep a social distance, they're saying that the number of hospitalizations is at a manageable number. South Korea, though, experiencing another story. They right now are seeing a record number of critical care patients being admitted for COVID-19. The number is roughly 989, and the real concern is that it hits 1,000 patients in ICU. If they hit that number, health officials there say they could actually see a trickle-down effect for others who seek treatment for other illnesses at several of the hospitals in South Korea. So what are they doing to try to counter that? Well, starting this weekend, they're going to implement social distancing measures. For example, in Seoul, they're going to reduce the number of people allowed for social gatherings from six down to four. All of this going to continue through Christmas and the new year, all part of an effort to stop the rising numbers. David Culver, CNN, Shanghai. Global policymakers juggling the impact of the pandemic on the one hand, surging prices on the other. Well, for the Bank of England, it's raised its main interest rate to tackle inflation. It was a surprise to those expecting rates to be frozen, which is exactly what happened. Meanwhile, at the European Central Bank, Anna Stewart has been watching all of them from London for us. Let's start in the UK. Uncomfortable time to be raising rates when the headlines, of course, are fixed on rising prices, the impact of COVID, as we were just hearing from Salma there. But the uh, Bank of England saying rates are incredibly low and we're going to raise them. And they have, but moderately, you know, 15 basis points here. And it shouldn't really come as a surprise if we take out the spread of Omicron. You look at inflation, it hit a 10-year high in November, coming in at 5.1%. In the minutes from the bank today, they're saying they expect that to potentially reach 6% next April. That is triple its target. Uh, And of course, Omicron actually could exacerbate some of the inflationary uh, pressures we see supply side certainly going forwards. Uh, Plus the data on jobs. We've had some really strong data looking at the jobs market. That is data that the Bank of England said they were going to hinge this decision on. So why has it come as such a surprise? Well, that is the spread of Omicron, which is so rapid, uh, as Salma was saying there, the highest number of daily cases uh, since the pandemic began. And that does have a very real risk to the economic outlook for the UK. Now, there's no lockdown imposed here. People have been told to work from home if they can. But anecdotally, coming to London today into the office, London looks pretty empty right now. Of course, the issue had they frozen uh, rates, as was expected largely by the markets, would be how do you then respond to further shocks down the line? And my gloomy thought of the day is that things can always uh, get worse. The IMF had warned the Bank of England earlier this week that they shouldn't uh, they shouldn't have inaction bias. I think the bank heard that. I think they agreed with it. It wasn't even a tight call. Eight to one. Julia? Yeah, I think investors were expecting it last time, didn't get it. So then they thought, OK, well, then maybe we're not going to get it this time. And then the Bank of England surprised them. So I think to your point... Um, it was 0.15%, just to translate to, to people out there who may not understand basis points. It's an incredibly small move. And you're right, firepower, just because it's an uncomfortable decision doesn't mean it's the wrong one. Um, what about for the European Central Bank, Anna? Same challenges. Same challenges, slightly more dovish response and absolutely no surprise here whatsoever. Uh, Christine Lagarde speaking in a press conference, talking a lot about flexibility. They are wrapping up the pandemic asset purchase plan. Sorry, that is a PEP as we know it. In March, as planned, the concurrent asset purchase uh, program, which runs alongside it, which is older, 
that will be stepped up ever so slightly to sort of bridge that transition. No rate hike and none expected even next year. So we're looking more at 2023 there. Uh, Christine Lagarde has spoken before about how uh, the bank raised rates too early after the financial crisis. They are not going to make that mistake again. Super Thursday, of course, saw lots of action across the board. We had Norway and Sweden. Norway raised rates, Sweden didn't. Different strategies to balance the same very different, uh, very serious inflationary risk, but threat from Omicron. So a very delicate balance we're seeing here and different strategies uh, to combat that. Julia? Yeah, and for many of them as well, they've tied it to jobs and the recovery and much stimulus that has already been provided. So I think we have to we have to emphasize here one, and you've already done it, the flexibility that all of these central banks are saying they still remain flexible if things change, but also that a lot of work has been done to support economies and we can take a little bit back. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think yeah. unwinding, particularly the asset purchases, is critical. You have to be able to act. Things can always get worse. Julia? Yes. Ugh. Yuck. <laughs> but yes. That's okay. Let's do it. Thank you for that. <laughs> Turbulent Turkey. Meanwhile, the lira is sinking to new record lows after the country's central bank cut interest rates for the fourth month in a row, now to 14%. The lira has lost about half of its value against the US dollar this year. Germanic Karajic joins us now with more. Um, great to have you with us on the show. Talk to me about Turkey because... When we're comparing interest rates with the likes of the United Kingdom, the European Central Bank, the United States, Turkish rates are far, 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 far higher. But when you face the price pressures, the credibility challenges that Turkey does, cutting rates doesn't feel like the right answer. Well, not according to the Turkish president, Julia, who believes that the way forward is to continue to cut interest rates. I mean, this decision today by the central bank was absolutely no surprise. And we saw markets already reacting to this uh, before the decision was announced. The lira hitting a new low, a record low of uh, more than 15 lira to the U.S. dollar. I have really lost count, as most people here have, of the record lows the lira has hit over the past few weeks. I mean, in November alone, it lost 30% of its value. And Julia, experts here, economists would tell you that this all boils down to President Erdogan's unorthodox monetary policies. You know, to fight inflation, most countries, as you know very well, would raise interest rates. In Turkey, it is the opposite. President Erdogan has always been a staunch opponent of interest rates. He describes them as an evil that makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. And he has made it clear that the path forward for this country is to continue cutting uh, interest rates as we are seeing right now. He believes that this is going to turn the economy around. He believes that this is going to create more jobs, more growth, uh, create more Turkish exports, bring in uh, tourism. And he's promising that this economic plan that he has is going to deliver results in the next uh, six months or so. And so many experts are questioning this as we are now watching inflation rate uh, at more than 20%. I mean, it is an absolutely devastating situation, uh, Julia. We've spent time out in the markets here talking uh, to people, and the majority of people would tell you that they feel they're getting poorer on a daily basis. They're watching their life savings, their incomes lose value pretty much on a daily basis. They are really struggling to uh, meet ends meet, you know, or try and, you know, people are really trying to cut down their expenditure. It has gotten so painful that people are unable to buy the most basics. You're seeing 
bread queues in Istanbul, for example, subsidized bread. Those queues are growing. It is a very, very painful situation, but the Turkish president is adamant that this is a struggle for what he calls economic independence for the country, and that is going to deliver results. In the past couple of hours, we heard President Erdogan announcing that they are raising the minimum wage by nearly 50 percent uh, by uh, in, in early 2022. That would probably, uh, you know, provide some relief for people who have been really struggling right now. But the question is, for how long when you're watching these this rising inflation rate? Yeah. One could argue that at this moment in time, your policymakers, particularly your central bankers, need to be absolutely independent and credible. And um, it's not what we're seeing, unfortunately. Jamana, great to have you with us. Thank you. Jamana Karashe there. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Super Typhoon Ray has slammed into the southeastern coast of the Philippines with winds of 260 kilometers per hour. It's bringing torrential rain that threatens to cause widespread flooding, landslides and storm surges. Authorities have evacuated nearly 200,000 people and taken them to government shelters. CNN's Vedika Sud is following developments from New Delhi and joins us now. Vedika, what more can you tell us? What's the latest? Well, Super Typhoon Ray smashed into the eastern coast of Philippines earlier today, Julia. And what's happened is that we've got to know that the landfall was made in a holiday island called Shargo. And we have reports coming in of power outages there. But here's what's interesting. In the lead up to that landfall, Julia, this cyclone upgraded from a typhoon to a super typhoon, which was which is equivalent to a Category 5 hurricane in the Atlantic. So it was quite potent and powerful, but the extent of devastation, uh, any casualties is yet to be reported. I think we'll know more by tomorrow morning because it's already past 10 local time in Philippines currently. But what we do know is that preemptive steps were taken earlier this week. Evacuation started. There were storm measures also in place, like you mentioned. About 200,000 people were evacuated. 90 flights were cancelled this morning, and according to officials, the Coast Guards had banned sea travel because of which almost 4,000 passengers are stranded at seaports at various points. What's also interesting is that there's no off-season in this region of the West Pacific tropical area. There are hurricanes that take place all the time through the year. In fact, this is the 15th uh, typhoon that's taken place this year itself. So along with COVID and other issues, they've had to face typhoons through this entire year. Now, the biggest concern will, of course, be in the coming hours when there's daylight again in the coastal areas. The question will be, will there be landslides? Will there be flash floods? And that is going to be the main concern along with the worry of casualties in the area, Julia. Of course, and we'll continue to watch it. Vedika, thank you for that. Vedika suit there. Okay, so to come here on Thanks. First Move. Security slip up. Hackers rush to exploit a software flaw that could impact the whole internet. And Reddit seeks Wall Street bets. The platform behind all the meme stocks mayhem this year files to go public.
Welcome back to First Move and the bullish shelf, certainly not idling on the shelf on Wall Street. U.S. stocks set to rally in early action after Wednesday's strong Fed-driven advance. We saw a more than 2% jump for the tech sector with the Nasdaq now in positive territory for the month. And forget about the three kings this Christmas too. Investors focused on the three rate hikes the Fed sees next year. Powell and Cruz set to wrap up their emergency bond buying in a few months also with tightening. Bring some frankincense to inflation or will Chair Jay Powell have to be more aggressive? He says what the Fed is doing is appropriate for now. I believe that inflation may be more persistent and that may be putting inflation expectations under pressure and that the risk of of higher inflation becoming entrenched has increased. That's part of the reason behind our, our move today is to put ourselves in a position to be able to deal with that risk. Powell also saying nothing about when the Federal Reserve might begin to shrink its balance sheet and begin selling the assets on his books. There's time for that. Michael Faroli joins us now. He's the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan. Great to have you on the show, as always. Powell's pivot, pretty much what you were expecting, I think, yesterday. You called it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this was a pretty well-telegraphed meeting for about two or three weeks ahead of time. Uh, most notably, of course, speeding up the pace of tapering, which puts themselves in position to hike perhaps as early as uh, March. Now, that would be a pretty rushed pace, particularly given that they're signaling three hikes uh, for next year. So probably the first, you know, I think they intend the liftoff to be more toward the middle of the year. But again, much of this was telegraphed uh, by that pivot that happened uh, later in, in November. And for all the column inches dedicated to pricing pressures, he did emphasize it was the underlying economy, the jobs outlook, the strength, mm-hmm. in fact, of the jobs market that allowed him to do that. And I do think this is an important point to make. That's right. He, you know, he was, he was pretty uh, clear about what caused them to change their mind. And most of the factors he listed related to the labor market. And the labor market, you know, has really been uh, quite impressive in terms of how fast the unemployment rate has declined. Uh, how much wage wage growth has picked up, and I think also he uh, he kind of cast some hesitation on the idea that labor force participation was going to pick up notably in coming months, which would relieve pressures uh, wage pressures. So that did seem to be you know they have they've been seeing high uh, inflation readings really since uh, March of this year. They've been pretty calm throughout that. Uh, but I think what they saw over the last, you know, uh, six weeks was really how fast the labor market was tightening. And that was seemed to be pretty decisive in, in this latest change in their uh, attitude toward the economy. And there's been a great deal of debate over whether or not they're what we call behind the curve, late to react in terms of tightening policy. And, you know, I'd argue at this point, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that they are and they know it. That's what they wanted. They wanted to ensure that the recovery was in place before they moved. The question is now, how does the economy respond? What are some of the challenges that they face, including COVID and the uncertainties? But they're certainly comfortable, I think, with with where they are today. Would you agree? Whether or not people think they're behind the curve. Yeah, yeah, I, I do agree with that. And I think you make a good point, which is that they intended to be behind the curve. Right. Now, I, I think what's notable is that being behind the curve, they don't feel too uh, concerned or rushed about getting back up to the curve. So you only have, a, even the most hawkish participants only anticipate four rate hikes uh, next year, whereas, you know, you have people out, you know, out there in the market talking about 50 basis point rate hikes and going every meeting. You know, even the hawks don't, 
aren't that worried about uh, this development, uh, the developments that we've seen on inflation in the labor markets. So, uh, you know, we can we can debate whether they are behind the curve, but in their own minds, they really don't seem all that worried about where they are, uh, at least given their projections. What are you forecasting for next year? Because certainly the message from the White House and they're desperately trying to um, control this is, look, we've seen the worst now as far as price pressures are concerned. And we're simply not going to be having this level of debating conversation about price rises six months down the line. Even if we are, do you think there's some payback coming? We've seen prices accelerate faster than wages in in 2021. Mm -hmm. Do we see perhaps the flip side of that in in 2022, which will be positive for, for people's incomes? I do. At the very Uh, least. Right. So wage growth, as I mentioned earlier, has picked up, and that tends to be a pretty persistent phenomena. So I would expect wage growth to remain strong next year, whereas a lot of the price increases we've seen uh, this year have been in volatile categories uh, like vehicle prices, which we think as some of these bottlenecks ease up uh, should cause inflation in those categories uh, to come down. You know, we, we don't expect inflation to come down to what it was in the 2010s when it was persistently below 2%. But we do think the type of increases we saw earlier this year are behind us. So that should be good news for workers if wages, as you say, in the reverse of this year, wages should be growing faster than prices, we believe, next year. So actually, overall, pretty positive into 2022. The wild card remains what we see as far as COVID is concerned and and a pickup in COVID cases and whether or not it impacts the economy and to what extent. What's your view? What are you forecasting, Michael? I know it's a tough one. Yeah, it is a tough one. We we have been uh, forecasting a slowdown in growth. Uh, In the fourth quarter, it looks like we're growing around something around 7% annualized. And we do expect a pretty notable slowdown uh, going into the fourth quarter of uh, going, I'm sorry, going into the first quarter of next year of two and a half percent annualized. So a pretty big step down, but there's still pretty decent growth. And a lot of that just given the seasonality of the virus, which obviously occurred last year, and we are starting to see signs again that's that that that's occurring this year. Uh, however, we would expect if you know if last year is a template, that growth would pick up as we go into the spring months. So I do think we, you know, we're in for a pro- probably a patch here of a few months where. Uh, this toward pace of growth we've seen for much, much of this year actually slows down a little bit, but I wouldn't uh, project that into the remainder of uh, 2022. Yeah, and much of the seasonality effect that we saw between this year and the past year is altered by the fact that far more people are vaccinated this year, even if it's not mm-hmm. enough, far more people yeah. are. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, great to chat to you. Have you a don't. great Christmas season, holiday season. Thank you. Michael Farrelly, the Chief US Economist at JP Morgan. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. Your stocks are up and running this Thursday. A pivoting pal. No cause for investors to scowl. Lots of green on the screen with the S&P 500 close to fresh records in early price action. U.S. investors uh, in particular undeterred, it seems, by the Federal Reserve's tightening announcement on Wednesday. The U.S. Central Bank will end its emergency bond buying program by the spring, allowing it to raise rates immediately after. Three rate hikes for now penciled in for next year, with four more on tap in 2023. Fed Chair Jay Powell says the U.S. economy is strong enough to withstand a reduction in support, emphasizing the dramatic improvement in the employment picture, as we were just discussing. COVID, of course, could also change the Fed's trajectory. Apple announcing it will delay plans for employees to return to work indefinitely due to uncertainty over the new variant. It hoped to begin welcoming employees back in February. 
Apple also giving workers $1,000 to spend on home office equipment. I wonder which massive global tech firm might benefit from all of that. Hmm. Cyber, in the meantime, is the most dangerous weapon in the world, politically, economically, and militarily. Quote, the grim warning comes from a former U.S. Defense Secretary, Bob Gates, and a report from the J.P. Morgan International Council. It comes just as we learn that millions of devices could be exposed to a critical security flaw. Matt Egan with more on this exclusive report. Matt, great to have you with us. I think, and I hope this isn't the most underappreciated and underread report of the year, but I'm glad that there is a council out there that is well and truly raising the alarm on this. What more does the report say? Yeah, Julia, well, you know, business leaders and former policymakers, they are clearly ringing the alarm here right. on cyber. This J.P. Morgan International Council issuing this report obtained by CNN that really urges uh, business and uh, the government to team up here and really address what they see as a very serious threat to not only the economy, but to national security. Now, this council uh, includes uh, J.P. Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, uh, Johnson & Johnson CEO, Alex Gorsky, and also former U.S. Uh, Secretary of State Condi Rice. Uh, let me read you a, a key line from uh, Bob Gates, who's the vice chairman of this council. And he said, the public and private sectors must work together to fortify our business and government activities against this threat and adequately educate the American people about just how dangerous this weapon is. And look at the last year or so. I mean, this has really been a wake-up call for all of us about the cyber threat. We had the Colonial Pipeline uh, hack, uh, the JBS hack uh, on the meat pr uh, producer. There was the solar winds uh, infiltration. And so that's why, as you can see, they're, they're putting out these series of recommendations. Uh, they want there to be better collaboration between the public and private sectors, ramping up uh, the hiring of cybersecurity experts, particularly in government enhancing intelligence sharing among uh, like-minded nations and also defining and enforcing the norms of cyber behavior. Julia, you know, there are so many urgent issues right now. We've got a climate crisis, a supply chain mess, uh, historic inflation. There's a lot on the plate of government and business. Hopefully they make some time and put some energy aside for cyber because it's, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. I couldn't agree more. And it's funny, we had Ian Bremmer from G Zero on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying actually it's fascinating to see some of the big tech companies step into the role that government should be playing, particularly in, in areas like this. The SolarWinds case was a huge example where Microsoft set up and said, look, we've got a huge problem here. Step forward, Microsoft once again, uh, again pointing out that we've got a problem with a potential security flaw and um, the risk of hacking. What is Log4j? And how may it be exploited, Matt? Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, well, Julia, you know, hundreds of millions of devices um, around the world uh, could be at risk from this uh, software uh, vulnerability. And Microsoft is warning that hackers from uh, China, Iran, North Korea, and interestingly, uh, Turkey as well, they've moved to exploit this critical flaw in software. And Microsoft said the Iranian hacking group has a history of using ransomware. And we know ransomware was used uh, during the Colonial Pipeline hack, and, and it had a, a really uh, you know, major impact on, on everyday American people. Uh, 
So we, we don't want to see any more of that ransomware. And a top Biden cyber official uh, warned this week that this vulnerability is quote, one of the most serious flaws that she's seen in her entire career. Now the pressure is on the tech firms to try to clean up their software code here and on businesses to make sure that they haven't been hacked. Uh, Julia, you know, unfortunately, we can expect to see more of these types of cyber events in 2022. Yeah, the council, we need an identifier and response team in addition to what we're seeing in terms of the discussion. Matt Egan, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Thank you. Now, after the break, crypto and sport go hand in hand. The CEO of FDX talks sponsorship deals, that $25 billion valuation, and much, much more. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Crypto and sport make great bedfellows, it seems, as big names clamor to sign sponsorship deals. The cryptocurrency exchange FTX is the latest, with a $10 million tie-up with the NBA's Golden State Warriors. The deal includes every player listing NFTs, yes, those non-fungible tokens on their website. Two stakeholders of FTX are NFL quarterback Tom Brady and his wife Giselle Budchen. They even star in their TV commercials. Now, calling itself a platform built by traders for traders, at the helm is a billionaire who's not yet 30 years old. Sam Bankman-Fried is the CEO and joins us now. Sam, great to have you with us. For my viewers who may not be familiar with what FTX is, just talk to me about what you offer, what differentiates you, and then we can talk about some of those sponsorship deals. Totally. You know, we are a global cryptocurrency platform. We offer, uh, you know, markets in kind of the standard assets. We have a pretty wide range of products from, um, you know, spot products, features, NFTs, and other things. Um, And, you know, we've really been product first uh, we've come from behind in terms of user base. We're one of the latest major exchanges to start up um, and have been, you know, gaining traction over the last few years. For traders by traders. So do people have to have experience of cryptocurrencies or at least decent understanding of cryptocurrencies and derivative products to, to join your platform? You don't have to. And, you know, over time, we've been putting more and more emphasis on the uh, less intense parts of it. Uh, as we build out a much friendlier retail interface. I think the, the first iteration of it, you know, when we launched a few years ago, was very much tailored towards the most sophisticated traders. Uh, we now have products that span the spectrum. It sort of looks Bloomberg-y from what I'm looking at on the screen. <laughs> yeah, I think that's about I'm right. i to say that. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so I've read and you've made some comments saying, look, at times you're up to 85% lower in terms of fees than your competitors, and yet you're profitable. How is that even possible? Are the margins in this so large? There are pretty healthy, healthy margins in, in the business. You know, one of the nice things is that it's a, uh, it's a pretty low expense business, if you think about it. Um, it's all online. And it's also direct to consumer which means that unlike the typical equities market structure where you might go through 20 different country companies from start to finish, all the intermediaries, all the brokerages, the, the clearing firms, the, the PFAW firms, in crypto, it's totally disintermediated. The only players are the buyer, the seller, and the exchange. And that can create a much more efficient model for everyone. It also means that when you see those kind of lucrative numbers, and I think my viewers, again, will be familiar with Coinbase simply because they IPO'd this year, it attracts others to come into the space and generally very quickly, and everyone competes for those kind of margins and it drives them down. Is that one of the big risks, actually, that you just can't sustain the kind of money that you're making today? 
you know, I think that when you look at the kind of uh, heavy retail side where some people have been charging really large fees, I do expect to see a fair bit of compression there. Uh, but I think that when you look at, uh, you know, the, the space that we've been most active in, which is you know, a much more competitive um, piece of this, uh, I, think, I think you're going to see less. And, and, you know, we've already uh, taken our fees to be much lower than what the industry standard is, um, you know, in anticipation of the compression that I do expect to see, as you said, in the industry overall. So I think we might see it for a lot of players. I don't expect that we're going to, to necessarily see it. Yeah, so um, you're basically um, sort of buying market share in a way with those fees. And if these guys suffer because they're charging too much, then um, it's going to hurt them a lot more than it does you, at least in the interim. Um, we that's are showing on this. Go on. Oh, you know, that's a thought. Just give, give the best experience to the user and, and hopefully other things work themselves out. Yeah, um, we were just showing a lot of NFTs. Um, on the screen as well. Talk to me about what you provide in this regard. Oh, and then we'll talk about sponsorship deals because now I'm showing that too. We're teasing our audience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, we have a fully-fledged NFT platform on FTX. It's cross-chain between Ethereum and Solana. Basically, it's a platform where you can do everything you want to um, in NFTs from uh, minting them, uh, trading them, auctioning them, depositing, and withdrawing. And it's also a platform that can act as the back-end for other people, um, whether they're video games, um, you know, whether you're looking at music or anything else that wants to integrate uh, NFT technology. So we had the electronic DJ Steve Aoki on the show last week, and we've had other guests say this to us, that they believe that somewhere between 98 and 99% of all the NFTs that are being minted and sold in the secondary market or the primary market at this stage are are going to be worthless very quickly. Sam, what do you what do you make of that? Do you, do you have a view on this? And are you investor in all of the things that you're providing in terms of um, sort of access to for customers? So I think that the NFT space as a whole is extremely exciting, and I expect to see growth in it over time. You know, over the the, the next few years. That doesn't mean that every individual NFT will grow, and you know, I would not be surprised to see a lot of the current ones. Um, you know, fail to grow in the way that that maybe the space overall um, would, because I think that we're really in the early innings here. And I think that a lot of the NFTs that we see, just there isn't that much behind them. They aren't, you know, all that cool. I think some of them are, but many of them aren't. And 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 yeah, I, I don't know that uh, that that all of them, you know, that you see today will necessarily, uh, you know, hold their price. Um, but that doesn't mean that the best of them will. Um, and that doesn't mean that the future isn't super cool for them. Yeah, I just I was just going to ask you whether you're selective about what you provide access to on the platform, only because we've seen with new exchanges that open up and the volatility that we've seen in crypto at times, sometimes it can be a challenge later on when people say, hey, we bought this on your site and we shouldn't have done and you didn't warn us. And I can just envisage in the future, particularly as we start to see more and more regulation, um, challenges in this space, like any other asset class. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we are very careful about generally what we list on the platform. Um, right. You know, we uh, on the NFT side, we do give a portal for users to list, list their own NFTs. Um, and so, you know, we we let people do what they want with the platform and um, and communicate what they want with it. Um, but certainly on the token side, you know, we have we have a rigorous listing process that we, we go through. Uh, for these, that being said, you know most things in the crypto ecosystem today are volatile. 
And, you know, whatever vetting we have for them, you know, users should be aware that these are volatile assets um, and that, you know, you should not be investing, you know, money that you're not comfortable losing in them. Yeah, they come with uh, health warnings at times too, or stress warnings <laughs> like any like any other um, asset. Now, yep. eagle-eyed viewers will notice that you're coming at us um, from the Bahamas there as well. And I know you set up in Hong Kong and then you decided to move. I mean, there are plenty of uh, crypto-friendly areas in Asia and Southeast Asia. Why, why did you leave Hong Kong and why did you move to the Bahamas? And it sort of ties to the broader question of what does good regulation look like in this space? Because I know you're a proponent of regulation. Why move and what does good regulation look like? Totally. So, you know, I think that there is a really large potential for the crypto ecosystem. I think in order to get there, um, you're going to have to see uh, some regulatory changes. And, and I do think that we will see them. And I think some of this, frankly, um, is, is in getting more oversight than we have today of some parts of the ecosystem. Because I think that there isn't enough. And I think that other parts of this um, are finding ways uh, to get, uh, you know, clarity to everyone involved. Um, I think that, you know, one thing that I would love to see is oversight of stable points. I think they're really exciting and awesome pieces of technology. Um, but I also think that it's in a position where I, there isn't oversight for most of them from, from many regulators to confirm that they're back the way that they say they are. And so I think that's like one example of a place where it would be really natural, I think, helpful for the space um, for there to be a regime built out. Um, there are not very many countries today, frankly, that have done so. Mm. You know, you look at the number of countries that have built out a comprehensive regulatory regime for crypto, small single digits. And, you know, you had a prior regime where many countries were not regulating it at all. That is by and large uh, gone now. And, you know, country after country is starting to regulate them. Uh, but it's going to be a long time before there's really kind of built out regimes for them. And it's in a messy in-between period in most jurisdictions right now. The Bahamas, it's one of the few places that has passed a comprehensive crypto uh, regulation uh, program. But I expect a lot more to follow suit over the next few months. Sam, um you don't speak like you're under 30, but you are. And I mentioned in the introduction mm -hmm. that the, the rise in wealth and what you've built here means that at least on paper, and you can, you can explain otherwise, if not, you are um, a billionaire, which is, uh, for most people, just an unimaginable amount of money and speed of wealth creation. And I'm sure it's been incredibly hard work and still will be. Um, how do you feel about that kind of wealth creation? And how do you feel about the current debate in the United States at this moment about a wealth tax, a billionaire tax? In favor or not in favor? Favor. So, you know, the first thing that I'll say is I, I think that, you know, I think for everyone, but especially for someone who's fortunate to be in a position that I am, you know, it's incumbent upon us to give back. And it's incumbent upon us to give back not just for our own sake and not just for our own legacy or reputation. It's important to give back to help the world and to prioritize the output of that. Um, you know, I plan to donate uh, almost everything that I make over the course of my life um, to, you know, causes that that can help the long-term future of the world the most. And, you know, I've been giving to everything from, you know, global poverty, animal welfare, um, you know, pandemic preparedness, um, global warming related charities. So that that's the first piece, and I think the most important piece. Um, and, and that doesn't just mean, you know, I think it doesn't just mean any donations. I think there's a big difference between some which are mostly consumption um, you know, naming buildings after yourself, 
um, versus, uh, you know, versus really focusing on what is it that would help the people who need it the most. You know, on the tax side, I'm not an expert there. Um, I think that it would be totally reasonable uh, to reform parts of the tax code and 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 try to collect more tax from people like me. I think that there are holes that could be patched, and um, and I think I would be generally supportive of looking into that. I think that like some versions of this would make more sense than others, and I think the thing you need to watch out for um, are, are are some versions that have been proposed where the taxes levied could actually be more than the amount of money that people have to pay them. I think that's yes. the problem that you've run into with you know some things like the unrealized gains uh, tax where you, you just haven't realized the gains to pay the tax bill yet. Um, so, so I think there's a lot of complicated implementation details there, uh, but generally uh, totally supportive of uh, you know making sure that the the best off pay um, their fair share and and maybe and maybe more. Sam, a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you so much, and we'll speak again soon. Sam Bankman, thank you, the CEO of FTX. Take care. Thank you. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, a Wall Street test for Wall Street bets. Reddit has filed to go public. The social media platform hosts the infamous subreddit that drove the meme stock frenzy earlier this year. Paula Monica joins me now. The meme mothership monetizes. That's what this is. For people that are completely bewildered by what we're talking about, explain. Because we don't actually have much knowledge now, right now, about the IPO. We need to understand. No, we don't. (laughs) Confidential filing. So they actually haven't really given too much detail about what the ticker symbol will be. Will it be REDT, perhaps? Will it be WSB? That could be a fun joke. APE, perhaps, as the uh, Wall Street Bets fans love to refer to themselves as. (laughs) Reddit is a social media platform where you have a lot of people posting, uh, you know, content uh, you know, and it's a very bare bones social media site that has really just exploded in popularity because of all of these subreddits, these very specialized boards of interest. And Wall Street Bets has become incredibly popular because of the meme stock revolution. So will Reddit, when it goes public, actually do well? Advertising revenue is surging. It was in the second quarter, the company said up nearly 200 percent to 100 million from a year ago. So that's obviously very strong growth, but is Reddit profitable? Will Reddit actually be able to have any sustained momentum in a world where clearly you've got the likes of Facebook and Snapchat and Twitter, uh, you know, and, and TikTok as you know, major social media companies all fighting for ad dollars and users? Some of, the, some of the Wall Street Bets users are really funny, though. I mean, I, I, we've got one here that I can show you. And obviously, bits of this are blacked out. But but wait, if WSB, Wall Street Bets, goes full and we all pump the mm out of the Reddit stock, then we profit off of them profiting off us profiting. Says it all, Paul. <laughs> We've got it's, 10 uh, seconds. Very, very <laughs> meta how the WSB crowd will happily take what they can get, even if they have to bash Reddit. Uh, yes. you know, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people that will be shorting Reddit using Reddit posts to talk about <laughs> they hate Reddit. Bingo. Beep bingo. Paul and Monica, thank you. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World is up next, and I'll see you very soon. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.